to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, TV and filmmakers, writers, directors, producers, composers, sound editors, video editors, VFX people, costumers, production designers, uh, I think I said writers. God only knows. Uh, all the, all the, the, in life in the time of COVID, days are still. They're, they're running together, even though we're slowly opening up uh, as a nation. But welcome, welcome. Uh, yes, we are indeed back. And if you're listening, you might be listening to us on AdrenalineRadio.com. If you go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, there's also a live stream there because station owner Nick likes toys and likes to do things like that. Uh, but you can actually watch. And as always, I've put together another tablescape. I love doing tablescapes for the show every week. Uh, I, so many of you already know and you laugh about them. Uh, but, uh, and I know Jessica Ritz is one. She loves the tablescapes, I think, more than anyone. But today is a very special one. Today is my my Gone with the Wind tablescape. Gone with the Wind in light of all of the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, the All Black Lives Matter protest and marches. Um, a decision was made by HBO Max. They were not. They were temporarily removing Gone with the Wind, uh, and I believe they made the decision after after an op-ed by uh, John Ridley who has been on the show before. Um, but they, it has created a furor that HBO Max was removing Gone with the Wind. Temporarily removing, but it's the very fact that they were removing it that got people up in arms. And I have to say, I am with the contingent, with the Whoopi Goldbergs um, and others, that you don't remove these things. You didn't even, they didn't even need to remove it. You could just add a commentary at the beginning of any presentation that you have. It's not like it's a movie that's shown every single day of the week. And for any of you watching the Facebook live stream of the show right now, um, I have many vintage, very vintage Gone with the Wind uh, articles, including Bound Screenplay. Uh, one of the reissues of the novel, mine is from 1964. Uh, an original VHS Um a deluxe DVD. I have about six more. Pam's sitting in there with her eyes going, like, what? Uh, I even have individual cell, film, film cells from the film. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's an important film from a fictional standpoint. It's an important film from a cinematic standpoint. And I'm on my soapbox right now that people need to be able to set to separate fact from fiction. You can create a fictional work based on some historical events, happenings, times, periods, places. Historical dramas are some of our most are some of our greatest cinematic works. They've been adapted into that. But by the same token, it is fictionalized. Films are not do unless it's a documentary. And it's going to be the perspective of the filmmaker or the author for whatever reason. And it's incumbent upon each of us when we see a film like Gone with the Wind. It's fiction. Do not take it at face value. Go and investigate and learn. 
Well, HBO Max is now, they announced today that they will be returning Gone with the Wind to their schedule in the near future. No exact date is known, but in good news for all classic film fans, uh, historical context is going to be presented by Jacqueline Stewart. Uh, many of us in the TCM community know her as our TCM host of Silent Sunday Nights. But Jacqueline is also, she is a black uh, film scholar, professor in the Department of Cinema and Media Studies at the University of Chicago. She is a renowned academic and and cinema historian. Uh, I welcome any contextual opening that that she brings to the film for people. But again, there's nothing like going out and learning yourself. Google, go to a library, learn about a period, get both sides of the story. Uh, That's what it is with everything. But the good news is everybody will be able to continue to enjoy Gone with the Wind over a broadcast uh, medium as opposed to owning DVDs, Blu-rays, VHS tapes, um, or the books. Um, You will be able to, you know, get the context by turning on the channel when Gone with the Wind shows at least once annually uh, on TCM. There is always context and the film's history. Um, So I'm very, very happy that Jacqueline Stewart will be the one presenting this contextual opening for Gone with the Wind. And hopefully it will open people's eyes, open up a dialogue, and get you to go in and read and learn about the real history, not just the beautiful Vivian Lee, Clark Gable, Hattie McDaniel history uh, that we see on screen or in Margaret Mitchell's book, Um, which, by the way, if you haven't read the book, the movie deviates strongly from the book as well. Um, So (laughs) I'm waiting for that to become another issue. It has been an issue in the past. But, so fear not, classic film fans, you will be able to see Gone with the Wind on HBO Max. You'll still be able to see it on TCM at least once every year. Uh, But I I welcome, I really am anxious to see what Jacqueline uh, prefaces the film with, uh, with context for all of us and for all of you. So, on to today's show. And yes, This is how long I keep things. For those of you that are looking, yes, um, you know, the edges of of the book are frayed and and weather-worn and colored, um, the screenplay in particular. But uh, I am am a pack rat with history and things and cinematic history and things like this. So today's show, though, I can't wait can't wait for my special guests that are going to join us at the midpoint of the show. Jeffrey Dor- um, Dornbos and Nathan Weatherington, I couldn't read my own writing, uh, will be with us live talking about A Thousand Miles Behind. What an incredible movie. Uh, it's about dealing with grief. One man and his grief. This is truly an ex- it's an emotionally experiential film. Um, Nathan, as writer, director, editor, this is his first film. Uh, however, not his first uh, creative endeavor, nor is it Jeffrey's. Both are actors. Both also 
part of Blue Man Group New York City. Um, and I and Jeffrey, I first saw him acting when he did, was in Fat Kid Rules the World, which was Matthew Lillard's directorial debut back in 2011. Um, and both Jeffrey and Nathan have popped up on all kinds of, of one-offs on TV episodes, NCIS, uh, Grey's Anatomy, Rosewood Law and Order, True Detective. Um, they are known commodities. And I think this pairing with this film um, is a perfect collaboration. And I'm anxious to talk to Nathan about how he uses sound and cinematography. The soundscape here, there is no score or dialogue for a very good portion of the film. It's observational. And this is a testament to Jeffrey's performance that he holds our attention uh, during this as we watch this man dealing with grief. Uh, so I'm very excited to talk to both of them. But first, briefly mentioned the film last week. Um, now you're going to hear the interview this week. Uh, I spoke with Mario Van Peebles about his new film, A Clear Shot. It, this, it is a timely and topical film. This is a must-see film in today's world. Uh, this is based on the true story of a group of four young Vietnamese gunmen who brought, who took hostages at a good guy's electronics store. To this day, it remains the largest hostage, hostage situation in the United States. Rick Gomez, a Sacramento police um, cop, was a hostage negotiator. As we see, on he was a man able to keep a cool head and... The whole idea is in hostage negotiation, as Mario talks about since he plays this character of Rick Gomez, um, you have to keep a cool head. You have no weapons on you. You have to talk down the, uh, the gunman, and you have to keep the hostages safe at the same time. Uh, it's a very cat and mouse. It's a chess game. When you get into this, we've seen this in other films. John Q, perfect example. Uh, with Denzel Washington many year, and Robert Duvall many years ago, um, with John Q holding a hospital, essentially hostage, to get a heart transplant for his dying son. Uh, but this, what sp speaks the loudest about a clear shot is you have the character of Rick Gomez, and he has to over... He's a, he is a black cop. Um, black, Hispanic, he's a blend. Um, we have Hispanic female cop involved. We have white, clearly racism abounds, uh, in terms of the SWAT team that don't want to listen to Gomez, uh, that have their own way of dealing with things, a very racist approach. Marshall Hilton is outstanding and he plays the lead detective and watching he and Mario together is a beautiful, a beautiful class in acting. Uh, the two of them really command the screen when they are on it together. The whole film is so well done. Um, Nick Leisure, writer-director, um, and he, he uses this film, even though it was made long before 
the George Floyd situation and what we've been facing the past couple weeks, um, he really uses film to bring us together and show us what happens if we don't come together, if we aren't able to, as Mario talks about, there are two Americas and you have to be able to speak to both of them. Uh, so take a listen. I don't, we're not going to get through the entire 32 minutes uh, of the interview, but you're going to get to hear probably about 20 minutes of it. And then the rest of it, we will put up uh, online for you. So take a listen to Mario Van Peebles talking about a clear shot and two Americas. After Armed, this is an interesting film for you to jump into um, and your character there uh, as, as chief and to now come into this a clear shot um, without knowing what's hap- what was going to be happening down the pike uh, on the explosion with all of the protests and, and George Floyd and everything else that's been happening. What was it about this character of Rick Gomez a hostage negotiator that spoke to you when you got this script. Well, a couple things. One was I didn't have to do the hard work. (laughs) 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 Uh, I I wasn't going to make any money because of independent film. And, you know, I love doing independence and not making money. And then sometimes I like to work with the studio so that I can, you know, survive in doing what I love doing. So I do a couple for them and a couple for me. So I just finished directing the um, Salt and Pepper movie mm-hmm. for Sony Lifetime, and that's studio, and that'll be coming out. And I don't know when, when that comes out, but we're working on that. Um, and then you know I, I go off and do a couple, you know, grittier independents and uh, keep keep uh, keep fresh. And sometimes I like to work with new filmmakers. Sometimes work with experienced filmmakers, and sometimes do the job myself. Nick, I'd met Nick. He seemed like he had a, you know, he, he just seemed like he had a good heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it. He just seemed like he he was new to the game. You know, he's he has a good heart, uh, good energy. And I thought, you know, part of what my mantra is, as I told you before, is the three loves. Love what you do, which I do. Love and enjoy the people you do it with. And love what you say with your work. And I thought with Nick, um, I could probably do those all three. Mm-hmm. Um and then he he understood where I was coming from in terms of the role. Like he went back to the the role I'm playing as the hostage negotiator. And what that means is, is that as a hostage negotiator, you have to use something called diplomacy, which we're a little short on right now mm-hmm. from the White House. That, that kind of being able to use your people skills to unite us, to bring out the best in us, to get us to de-escalate to not fan the frames of racism, lookism, sexism, classism, but to get us to see our commonalities is a, is a skill set. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, that, that's a character that I like to play. I've played many uh, cops in my uh, career. I've played a couple guys who would fall onto the bad guy side of the equation. And I've had the, the privilege of working with good cops and who said to me to a person, that that um, bad apples, if you will, uh, ruin and tarnish it for everyone. Yeah, you know, and uh, and and the best way for us to to start weeding out the bad apples is actually 
make it you know make it make it so that thin blue line understands that they all represent each other and that bad apples make them all look bad i think it was chris rock said something the other day is like you know imagine you're riding in a pl- you're flying in a plane and the plane goes down <laughs> oh we've just got a few bad apples you know we've got a few bad pilots you know well guess what we, a few bad pilots will cost you your lives you know we wouldn't stand for it god we got a guy operating on your heart he screwed up your heart you know we got a few bad apples as surgeons <laughs> oh my god there's a way to deal with bad apples yeah. that, that, that threaten your life but you don't want a surgeon working on your heart oh we got a bad apple or a guy flying the plane you wouldn't accept that, right? That's <laughs> that would be no. That's unacceptable. We have a rating system. Well, this guy who put his knee on the throat of Mr. Floyd, he had 18 strikes against him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you. I thought in baseball it's three strikes. How many? If it was an airline pilot, the guy said, "Well, this guy narrowly missed, clipped the building here." The passengers all cited him for <laughs> turning the plane upside down. How many times? Would the airline union allow that to go down? Yeah. Well, the minute that that is reflected in the police department and the same person defending them is not the person who's chummy with them or the prosecutors, they would be like, that's unacceptable. We have to measure your success by, you know, how you deal with the public and, and, and do you keep them alive? Do you protect and serve? Do you pro- Basically, the police department is there to protect, you know, the 95% of us from the 5% of us that would do us harm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. <laughs> That's what they're there to do. <laughs> and here's the thing. is that When you go, wait a minute, you can arrest Dylan Roof, nice-looking little white kid, who shot a <laughs> bunch of people at a church mm-hmm. who invited him in with love, shot them up. You can arrest him and not hurt a hair on his, hair on his little blonde head. That's it. And he killed nine people. And maybe take him to McDonald's to get lunch on the way back. But poor old guy is, uh, selling cigarettes on the corner, he gets killed. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who goes for a jog, he gets killed. So you got to go, wait a minute. Holy cow. You know, what is this? this is Floyd's pulled over because they think he wrote a bad check? Well, wait a minute. Now, that is that... You a kneel on his neck behind that? Come on, man! Right, and so and and and, but it, but if, in the case of the airline pilot, that mistake would yeah. cost everyone's lives. Yep. And in the case of a doctor, that could affect a white person or black person equally. Yep. Right, in theory. So, but here in this particular case, it's very very hard for people outside of the dominant culture to understand that there is a different treatment Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that minorities get. And so they go, well, he must have done something. He must have, why was he running? Why would he run from the cops? Here's the thing that's interesting. I I have a friend who teaches driver's ed. Okay, and and it's a a very interesting sort of socioeconomic experiment. Right, because when you teach drivers that there's all you got to teach everybody the rules, and everybody loses the Asians and the blacks and the Latinos and the whites and the Jews. We're all in the same thing. We learn it. We we're either good at it, we're bad at it. Okay, but then there's a part of the class that where they talk to you about if an officer pulls you over, how to deal with that officer. And they say, okay, keep your hands on the wheel, turn the radio down, keep your hands on the wheel. Address the officer as yes, sir, no, sir, or ma'am. Okay? And it, this is where it breaks up into two groups. The people of color go, yep. 
Mm-hmm. The people who are white go, well, I just say, what's the problem here, pal? <laughs> <laughs> what's going on? Because <laughs> they don't get it. They don't know that there's two Americas. So if you're, if you're in the dominant culture and everyone that is on the dollar bill is the same color as, uh, as you, you know, and, and everyone, that, they teach you that Jesus and God look like you, and they teach you that even Santa Claus is, looks like your uncle. Well, in, in every SAT and every job interview is geared to you. You've never had to be bilingual. Mm-hmm. You never had to learn their language. They have to learn your language. Do you know what I mean? You never had to adopt their last name. We had to adopt their last name, mm-hmm. right? So you don't understand the whole how this whole thing works. So you've never had uh, been exposed to two Americas. So naturally, you go, "Oh, they must have done something. They probably ran. Mm-hmm. They did." They did this and that. They couldn't have just broken into her house. So finally, when people, even good white people, get to see the video, and again, I saw this with Rodney King, so I don't know how those lovely white people in Simi Valley voted for the officers to get off the Rodney King thing, but, you know, that, that's that's how they saw it. But, you know, in this particular case, you finally get some white folks to look at it and go, you know what, I don't understand how you kneel on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, right? So, so what's, what's, what's interesting, it, back to the, the movie, it's a clear shot for a second, is to play a character who is not in the business of pulling his gun, mm-hmm. but in the bu- business of getting both sides, the, the good cops, the overzealous cops, and the other, and the disenfranchised kids, who in this case are people of color that happen to be Vietnamese, mm-hmm. some of which you can reach and save, and some of which are too far gone. You will not be able to reach and save everyone. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and to try to go into that and say, listen, I don't want to give those guys outside any excuse to shoot you. I'm going to try to keep you alive. But you've got to trust me, I, my experience as a person of color in this country, being disenfranchised, uh, I, I get where you're coming from, but violence is not going to be the solution here. And let me try to get you out of here alive. Work with me. Help me help you. Being that kind of character is a very interesting and I think helpful character for folks to see. Mm-hmm. That in these times we need to see positive characters uh and hopefully of color as well but that are bilingual that yeah. you need you can't just be the brother in the street yelling you need someone who can talk to the police officer and talk to the brother in the street mm-hmm. you know martin could do that malcolm could do that yep you know you got to be able to talk to you got to be able to code switch you know what i'm saying and we need we need that that cat to go say okay keep a lid on that let me explain to you how this works to get us out of here alive. Mm-hmm. As Dr. King said, we all learn to live together as brothers and sisters or we perish together as fools. Mm-hmm. When I get out of here alive, you can't listen to this uh, Colonel Marmalade who's trying to stoke white supremacist uh, fear and anxiety and anger. You've got to sort of say everybody de-escalate. And then you also understand that there are going to be groups that want to see looting that want to see rioting that are a part of the far right. Yep. There's some knuckleheads on the far left, right? But there's some people on the far right that say, yeah, let's make the most of this. Let's get our, let's put these stacks of bricks where someone can throw them, even though there's no construction. Well, how are these stacks of bricks? You know, let's, let's say, you know, so it, it becomes pretty complex and it's a complex world. 
and we're a complex species. And so it's an interesting time for, for Nick to have this movie come out. It's, a, yeah. it's an interesting time to play a character like this who is himself imperfect, you know, and, and, uh, and, and try to walk that line and say, let's see if I can, let's see how many people we can save today. Well, you know, I love the intricacy of your character of Gomez. I love how everything builds up in the way that Gomez is relating to Loy, uh, Thailand, over the phone. But before we even get to that, we've got to have Gomez coming to having a meeting of the minds with Marshall Hilton's character, Cappy. And watching you and Marshall together, and I love Marshall, um, watching the two of you together do a dance and Gomez is not giving in. You know, it, it's you slowly see the character of Cappy who is realizing Gomez really does know what he's doing. He knows how to handle this situation and this going in charge mentality that the sheriff's department has or that even he has is not the way to do it. This Gomez's way, this is the right way. And to watch this take shape in the film, I'm watching this and it's like, oh my God, this should be like mandatory viewing for every police force, every law enforcement agency, and for people just to see that there is a better way. And you guys really nail that in your performances and the dance that you do the complexity of that so well, th thank you that I, I you know that that's great to hear you know sometimes you make a film it's an imperfect film you play a character that's an imperfect character but you know you show a little light you show a little bit of it's easy to say here's the problem it's a harder thing to say here's a way out yeah here's a solution to that problem here's a way out here's the kind of humanity we need now, I'm, I'm particularly, you know, I feel I was blessed. Some people will go, oh, I don't know if you're blessed, but I look at it as blessed, and here's why. Well, I'm, I'm healthy. I get to be in a business I like and make some money doing it, and that's, that's a blessing for sure. But I'm blessed in that, you know, my, my dad's uh, African-American. Mm -hmm. My mom's white. My aunt is gay. My other black aunt is a Trumper. I've got Native American, East Indian, Asian. I've got it all in my family tree. So I have to cast a big net. I've got to love everybody. There are going to be people in my family who don't have the same hair texture, the same skin color, the same beliefs, the same voting pattern mm -hmm. as me. But I got to talk to them. I got to deal with them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that is a real blessing because what it helps me do is see our commonalities. Mm -hmm. I think that's good for America. You need, we need folks that can, you know, we have to, we need a healer in chief and we don't have that right now. No, we don't. We've got a guy who, you know, unfortunately is, is stoking the, the fires and, and, and that's just unfortunate. And he's bunkering down and hunkering down and using words like, well, just, you know, it, it sounds like the guy in the film. He's just like, we'll just dominate them. We'll just yep. overwhelm them. We're going to use some shock and awe, you know what I mean? Yeah, but you know what? The whole world's going to end up blind if we do eye for an eye too long. You mm -hmm. know, so we need a healer in chief, and I think in his own way, 
this character is all about healing. Yeah. And, and how do you do that when you don't have the power, when you have to reach people? And what do you do when you when it's not about using the gun and dominating and shooting? And then and, and part of that is that bully mentality, is the colonial mentality. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go in to uh, America and I'm going to discover America. Yeah, well, there's people already living here. Well, that's okay. They're going to work for us. They're going to speak our language. We're going to dominate them. You know, if you if you look at it, it's that, that same bully mentality of, you know what, I can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. That's the same mentality as I can keep my knee on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds and get away with it. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same mentality. And you know what? I believe that that same mentality that will repress over color. Mm-hmm. If you that racism is right around the corner from sexism, yeah, and sexism is around the corner from lookism and classism, and then eventually the wholesale destruction of nature herself. And the weird thing is that it left unchecked, that colonial bully mentality will destroy the planet we're all living on together. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of the. And I'm glad that you brought that up because this is something with a clear shot that Nick really has playing out because we have Evan Kula, the, the a female cop who's getting bullied. And here again, we've got Gomez, who is the one that, no, there's no bullying in sight. It's like, hey, no, I respect you. You need the guy. I respect you. I'm not messing with you. And I have to say, Mandela does a wonderful job as Sean here. I love seeing you and your kids work together. <laughs> Thank you. I love. I really, the gentility that he brought to that character, um, I really love that. And he had his customers and he hustles them. It's like, no, while they get them out of the store, let me get you over here to car radios. Right. You oh, know, good. I yeah. mean, his character was thinking. Yeah. He, he was thinking and but in here we we have characters that are thinking we have hostages that are thinking but we have we're addressing the sexism through Evan cool we're d- addressing the you know bullying got a great setup with the managers chip and Hugh the black one and the white one right, sitting right, there together right. we're right. seeing all of this and slowly but for a couple bad apples which are the which are um, long long in particular um, long and Kwong and yeah and even it's frightening to see Fam turn the way he turned but I think watching him he turned out of fear not out of following out of fear because and confusion because he didn't know what to do but all of this is interconnected so we see sexism unfolding we see racism unfolding. And nobody is exempt from anything in this film, Mario. That everything is included here. Everyone, you know, gender, race, it just, it is so well constructed from that standpoint and when viewed in in the lens that we have right now. Right. Right. Well, you you see it with a certain clarity, so, but that reflects, that bounces you can't have that kind of clarity if you don't have that kind of life experience. So someone else will just see it as a, it's a movie and like that. And someone else will see it, you know, on a certain level, you're seeing it at 30,000 feet. And so it's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you because you look at the bigger picture. And, um, 
you go a little deeper. So I, I appreciate interviews like this. You go, oh man, someone gets the intent. Someone gets it, you know, and that's, that's, that's just great. So, uh, you know, and I like to think that, you know, my mantra has been as a filmmaker, film actor guy is that, um, I like to believe, and it maybe just makes me feel good that, that film and art, which entertains us, but also makes us think a little bit, makes a difference that people want to be the success that we see. And that what my father did with his film, Sweet Feedback's Badass Song, which, you know, putting a, an African-American in that role, um, in a revolutionary role at that time, and then the studio starting to imitate him with Shaft and Superfly and all that stuff, it changed how people of color, how black people were seen. Mm-hmm. We went from, you know, sort of the Motisa tribe, the servant class, once a Motisa, Samoak officer, you know, to, to being the, the lead, that if we could suddenly be the, uh, the winner, that if, if just for, on screen, we could win for two hours. Mm-hmm. If just yeah. on screen, we could be the lead in life, that maybe one day, you know, that if, if we could win a role, you know, could one day we even win a presidency? Mm-hmm. Right? That it, that you will see your first female uh, president, your first African-American president on screen or on TV. And yet and one day, guess what? It happens in life. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I like to believe that we can affect change by everything we do and that... That if you create media that makes, you know, it can be destructive, but if you, it, it, but it can be positive too. It's a mm-hmm. double-edged sword. If you say, look, we can be all these things. And, you know, there's a way out. You don't have to just be with the looters or be with the, the, the you can, you can, or be with the abusive police. There are many, many good cops. There are yeah. many good apples, you know, and, you know, we can find commonality and make this work. And it's the four pillars, right? So if you want to make change, and people listening to this interview say, well, okay, how can I affect change? I've got some friends calling me up saying, Mario, what can I do? Well, I would say there's four pillars. I would say education. Mentor someone. You know, reach out to some kid that needs to get tutoring right now. You've got poor kids of color who don't have iPads, who now are getting, can't get homeschooled, who are going to fail. Mm-hmm. They will not be able to go to the next grade. You know, figure out a way to get them iPads if you want. Figure out a way to mentor them or tutor them or, or guide them. That, that That's helpful, okay? You've got prison reform. You know, we've got prison, you know, is a modern-day uh, slavery. You know, if you're in prison, you can't vote. They take away, the, they, they, they take away your right to vote. Uh, you work for very little, and, you know, we, we know what that is. It's the modern-day slavery. So if there's a way to work in prison reform, um, you've got law enforcement, you know, good cops can help make it important and you know, make it a priority to get rid of bad cops. You've got to sort of say, you've got to, you know who the bad cops are. You know, if a guy's got 18 strikes against him, you know who that guy is. Yep. We got to get that dude out of there. He makes you look bad. It's not worth the destruction. Right now, if we go after a bad cop and then a family goes after him and stews the that they sue the city, so it winds up being taxpayers. Yep. Who pay for it? And that's what people. And that's Mario Van Peebles talking about a clear shot, and how it intertwines with the America that we're living in right now, and what we need to do, what we need to do as a nation, as people, to 
get out of the, the situation we're in right now. Uh, there is still more to Mario's interview, but as I said, we're going to have that out. <clears throat> That'll be up online. But right now, he's been patiently on hold. Uh, in just a second here, I'm going to bring Nathan Weatherington on. Jeffrey hasn't joined us yet, but Nathan, uh, writer, director, editor, we're, we have him. But first, just got the breaking news. The Oscars have been continued to April 25th, 2021. Uh, and let's see. They're also moving the opening of their museum to April 30th of 2021. And uh, it looks like the qualifying run for films is extended to February 28th of 2021. So I'll have all of that up later, but it just came out from the Academy. Wanted to fill you in right now. So, but without any further ado, let me welcome Nathan Weatherington to the show. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I'm fine. We're st- Jeffrey hasn't joined us, but I figured, oh, the heck with it. We're just going to get started with you. Yeah, we'll get right in there. You know, I was just, was, did you just have Mario on just now? Uh, I had a pre-record with him, yeah. All right. So I did, I was in his movie. A what, a clear um, shot? I did, I did uh, a movie called uh, Badass. Oh, okay. In the, in the early 2000s where he, he made the movie about, he played his father. Yes. He played Melvin. Yes. Um, and that was one of my first film roles ever. I was hearing it as I was on hold. I was like, oh, it's so funny that she's got Mario on right now. Well, and it's even funnier because had I let the the interview keep continuing, there's about another 17 minutes of it, um, that he actually talks about that film and playing his father. Yeah, amazing. So, um, it's, yeah, that's, it's a great little film. Uh, Rain Wilson is in there mm-hmm. long before The Office ever happened for him. So, oh, you know, and I, I love, I love finding those little gems when they first happen and seeing who pops up in them and then where they pop up later in life. Um, yeah. You, <laughs> you, you've been all over the place. As I had said at the top of the show today, um, you know, I've seen you and Jeffrey both in, in different television, yeah. in, in different te- one-off, television one-offs over the years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Jeffrey, I distinctly remembered from his role in Matthew Lillard's directorial debut, Fat Kid Rules the World. Uh, and that, yeah, that's, yep. that's going back, you know, nine years or so. So, just, yeah. and the two of you, both New York City Blue Man Group. So it's, it makes yeah. perfect sense that you would collaborate on this film, A Thousand Miles Behind. And Nathan, yeah. this is an exquisite film. It is emotionally experiential and... I think because of your creative experiences, you have utilized that to really integrate the cinematography, the beauty of Mother Nature, of the universe, of uh, you know mm-hmm. the metaphor that all of that gives us, and integrate that with the sound. The sound design of this film, Nathan, it blew me away. Because we go through, um, you know, there is no music at all until the 1754 mark. 
Uh, and then it starts very simply, a single piano yeah. note and one chord, and then it slowly builds as Jeffrey's character of, of Preston takes off trying to on a motorcycle, yeah. trying to deal with his grief. But then we don't even get, and you bring in some, you know, some needle drops that are beautiful. And I know that you, that you wrote part of them, uh, some of them. Yeah. And then we don't even get any real human interaction until the 35-minute mark of the film. Um, it's, yeah. it's all yeah. just a man trying to come to grips. And we're watching this, and through so much of it, as I said, until he gets on the road on his motorcycle, and my God, that Ducati is gorgeous, by the way. Uh, yes, it is. It's a wonderful bike. Um, you know, you're just, you're feeling the agony. It's agony for you watching him, um, where there is no yeah. sound. There's no birds in the trees. There's life. It's just a cacophony of emptiness. In in the house and you know, so yeah, gorgeously it was so designed. Challenging to do that. You know, number one, what led you to take that tact? Because that's a very unique tact for a director to take. Right. Well, there were several things. Primarily was our budget, um, which was very small. I mean, we had a minuscule, if even a budget at all. Um, so it became. I ended up writing the film to be made for what we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then you start, it was really just one challenge after the next, after the next. Um, and then how you're going to approach it, how, for me, it was really how can I tell a cohesive story with nothing? Or can I? It was such a challenge. Um, but I hadn't made a film before. So the whole thing was really an experiment and what you'll hear really going back, I mean, so I'm told in film school, they'll always tell you, show, don't tell, show, don't tell, show, don't tell. So I really adopted that and just figured, you know what, I'm going to have this experiment and see how much I can design this without speaking. Like, mm-hmm. and you know, Jeffrey and I both come out of a blue man background, so we're very used to not using dialogue. Right. Um, but it was very challenging, and I know the first 25 minutes of the film can be very challenging for people. Because um, it is so minimal, but it was all really done by design. Because I wanted the house, I wanted, I wanted you to feel the emptiness that he was feeling, mm-hmm. and I wanted you to feel the house kind of starting to suffocate him. So when you hit, you know that that break into two, where he gets on the bike finally, and he's for the first time out of that house, mm-hmm. you feel like as an audience member, you're exhaling all this tension. You didn't even know you had. Yeah. Yeah. And you you succeed so well in creating that. As I said, it's like you're in agony, you know, watching him. You feel. Yeah. You feel not even claustrophobia, but the the coffin-like. It's almost like he's in a mausoleum and all the air has been sucked out of it. Yeah. It's just ghosts. He's in a house full of ghosts. That's why he's sleeping in the backyard. He can't be in that house. And yeah. um, and he has no idea what to do with himself. But then once he gets on the road, and it is particularly after he meets Tracy, uh, the character of Tracy, where he really yeah. has his yeah. first human interaction, 
where you open up the sound. We start, we hear nature. We start to hear birds. You slowly add, you add layers. And where it might have been one bird, okay, now it's seven birds. And you hear the glasses in a bar and you hear more than just a shuffle of footsteps. You start hearing wind. Well, you know where that really begins? It, that really begins before he meets Tracy. It really starts when he's out in the desert and he dumps his bike. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he drops it messing around. And then he starts climbing on these rocks. Yeah. And we hear, you see him hear the wind. And then suddenly he kind of hears the music of the breeze. And for the first time in the film, he smiles. Yeah. Yeah, um, and that's where that design really starts to kick in, and and it just keeps building, and when we get to the to yeah. ocean sequences, oh my god! And mirroring that is your cinematography, Keith Dunkerley's cinematography. These are yeah. some of the most beautiful shots um, that I have yeah. seen on film, Nathan. The way he captures wow. the sun, um, yeah. and the underwater sequences in the third act are just gorgeous with the sun coming through the water. So you get the disbursement of the rays. It's very spiritual. It's very metaphoric. Um, And it's just gorgeous. And you feel this, you know, that's, you feel an utter calm as you watch that. Yeah. It's such a testament to Keith. Um, Keith made this film with one camera and two lights. He wow. had no camera department. It was just him. So he was pulling focus himself. I mean, he shot the entire movie by himself. He's a one-man machine. Um, and it's stunning. His work in this movie is stunning. I would never, never have believed that this was just one person. Because... Our total crew was five people. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that was the whole production crew from start to finish. Was five people or less? That five includes Jeffrey, who is the star. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. That's how small this was. Pardon? That's how small this film was. Oh, my God. Well, you certainly left a very yeah. small carbon footprint. That's for certain. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. y- you know, how did you pick the location? Because the locations are just beautiful. The desert scenes, even the, even the the overhead drone shots of you know riding on a high, on a highway by himself, um, yeah. but the cliff scenes. Where did you find? What location did you pick? Where did you film this? You know, I location scouted the film by myself, um, but I'm a big, I, I'm really a big camper, uh, outdoorsy kind of person. So these are all spots that are within three or four hours of you know, of where I live in LA mm-hmm. and they're all spots that I, I camp at frequently. So I really wrote the film for these spots. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's like kind of my backyard in California. Um, and I just use those locations to mirror his internal states of being really. Um, and we're lucky in California. We have such a diverse uh, ec- ecosystem. Yes. You know, you have the desert, an hour away, you're in snow-capped mountains. You can just you can hit it all. Um, so, and for me to be able to make the film and be largely outside, not on the soundstage or not in the studio, is good for my soul. 
Mm-hmm. And I think all of us felt that way. Um, it, it was wonderful being out, outdoors. Well, um, once we got into the house and had, we actually shot the house last. And once we got into the house, I think we all started getting a little, uh, uh, a little angsty by the end of that. <laughs> Well, I have to tell After you. After having just been in all these locations, I have to tell you that watching this film, and the fact that so much of this is outdoors, yeah. it really it felt like a breath of fresh air after being cooped up in the house for so long, with, you know, stay at home, safer at home lockdown. Um, to yeah, really exactly. see that um, unfolding, it really feels. For anybody that has been sitting in the house or sitting in the house alone and just waiting or fearful, you feel this great relief, like a wafting breath of fresh air come through as you watch this film. Mm. Um, That's such a great point. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. All these people have been just sitting in their houses. You know, we have all been feeling a form of grief. Um, like mm-hmm. what Jeffrey's character Preston ha- was feeling. Preston is dealing right. with traumatic loss and grief of that. And essentially for, for the past over three months now, everybody has been feeling their own form of grief or loss. They can't go out. They can't yeah. leave the house. You can't go to the store. Everything's closed. Um, so everybody is, is in their own coffin They've been locked up in their That's own coffin. Yeah. Um, and just watching this, it is a huge... It really, it's, it's very similar to the character of Preston when he goes into the ocean for the first time and the water washes over him. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's a very hard feeling to describe as you watch this. But I know... It's really just that baptism into change. Yeah. You know, it's like something has shifted now and there's, you know, the water is very symbolic in, in many things. Yes. Um, but... And, of signifying that, that moment. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's immediately... I'm writing baptism, baptism in my notes as I'm watching, yeah. as I'm watching yeah. the film. You know, how long did it take uh, to shoot this one? And then your editing process, or were you editing as you went? No, we shot in 14 straight days, and that included traveling. Uh, so we were driving, shooting, driving, shooting. When we were driving, we were shooting the bike. When we get to where we were going to be, we'd just set up and start shooting. Um, so it was a pretty hectic. We were shooting really probably, you know, 18 to 20 hours a day. It was, it was intense. Wow. Um, and then the editing really, that took, I guess, about, I worked on the film. We got it back. We finished shooting right before the holidays, um, for the Christmas holidays. So I kind of compiled, logged, I logged in all the footage, um, did Christmas, and then I started the first or second week of January and basically just sat at my desk for three straight months. And cut the film. Wow. How difficult was it cutting this one and finding that right pace? Because this one, because there is, especially in the first half, there, there's so little dialogue. It's all about pace yeah. in tandem with Jeffrey's performance. Yeah. 
Well, it was a lot of, uh, it was a big process, you know. I, Vanessa uh, Campbell, who plays Tracy, um, who is also my girlfriend, we really, I basically cut the film into like a, down to where it was like in order and it was basically like a block of wood. And then we just whittled away at it once we got it into like a shape. And it was really just a constant reworking, 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 trying mm -hmm. to find trying to find that pace that you see on screen now. Um, and we hired an editor for a week mm -hmm. once we got the film just about done to help us smooth out some things that we couldn't. Um, because I had never cut, I had never edited. I mean, I've never made a film or a video even hardly. So um, it, the whole thing was a learning experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then we went back and we changed the music and we, we kind of re, recut a little more. Uh, and we just tinkered with it. You know, I, I've got to, I have to tell you, uh, Vanessa is, she is a light from above when she appears in this mm -hmm. film. Her energy, her mm -hmm. effervescence, her sincerity. Um, you watch this and it's like, okay, if this doesn't kick Preston into gear, just being around her energy, nothing will. She right. she is just she lights up the screen, Nathan. Lights she's it up. She's like that in life. I mean, oh. she she has that she has that charisma about her. You know that her energy is is that character. Oh, you are one lucky man. <laughs> one lucky yeah. man. So yeah. Now jumping into this as your first film. What kind of trepidation did you have about this venture? What, what was the most challenging aspect of meeting your own expectations? To be honest with you, I don't know that I had expectations. I, it, the whole thing really was an experiment. I kind of, that's how I started with it. It kind of became this, you know, I, I was... I had left a full-time job and had moved back to L.A. and was restarting into the Hollywood thing again. Mm -hmm. And it was just crickets. There was nothing. So I'm like, I can't just sit here and do nothing. So I'm just going to make a movie. I'm going to get a camera. I called Jeffrey. And I was like, hey, if I made, like, a motorcycle, if we did, like, a film where I would shoot you and then just the two of us would go and I'd make a movie about you on a motorcycle, would you be into doing that? Uh, and he kind of thought about it. He was like, yeah, I, I would do that. Um, so then I was like, well, okay, he, if he's going to do it, I should probably go ahead and write a script because I don't feel comfortable <laughs> actually just trying to craft a story out of absolutely nothing. <laughs> and once I hit that point, I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm actually going to just make this an experiment and I'm going to just hit the YouTube, um, filmmaking channels and I'm just going to try to learn how to make a movie. And so that started with Save the Cat. I got Save the Cat. I wrote the script basically paint by numbers on beats that you have to have in the store. I learned so much about filmmaking. I mean, I learned everything making this movie. What was uh, and at the end, I, I was just, I'm happy that it's watchable. Oh, it's I was actually very shocked Nathan, that it came out so well. Nathan, it's more than watchable. More than watchable. If you ever want to see barely watchable, I got plenty I can show you. Uh, <laughs> Yours is definitely yeah. not in that category. Um, 
it is a pleasure watching yeah. this film. Even the emotions that you go through watching it, while initially they aren't happy emotions, um, the payoff yeah. is there, but you feel something as you're watching this film. And it's not that, you, and you're not cringing in terror because it's bad. Um, I mean, yeah, I think it's a very beautiful film. Oh. I don't think it's a film that's going to be for everybody. It's essentially an art film, mm-hmm. I think, but. You know, I'm so proud of it just in the way it came out. I think Stan Bowen, who scored the movie, Ugh. I mean, these are just my friends I dragged into this with me. And they all very willingly came and they did everything I asked them to do. Uh, and I think that this score is so instrumental, it's so minimal, yes. but it is there. And it, I think Stan's music is so beautiful, mirroring, mirroring Preston's states yes. as we go. I mean, it's true. I love the music, and I love the needle drops that you wrote, that you guys wrote yeah. for this. Um, the lyrics yeah. are, they serve very much as exposition. If you listen to I mean, it was all written specifically yeah. for this film. Yeah, if people yeah. Li- actually listen to the lyrics, it's, they are inside Preston's head. They are telling us what's, exactly. what is going on in his head. Um, yeah. And again, it's a testament to Jeffrey and his performance that he can hold yeah. our attention and draw us in and be that compelling without saying anything, just by well, being, I... just just by the look on his face, the consternation, the pain. He he is yeah. very good. He can show pain emotional pain um, with his movement, yeah. the way he plays with the wedding ring, um, the way he sits on the floor amidst uh, dozens and dozens of dead flowers. Um, yeah. it's, it, it really is amazing to watch him because that's what you're doing here. He's an incredible, incredible actor. There are so many who, don't, who just don't get their shot, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I have so many friends that are world, world-class talents, and they just aren't getting their shot. And it's so exciting to have had the opportunity to have made this film and let these people show what they can do. Vanessa, Casey Wolf, who plays the kid in the bar, um, Jeffrey. And it's just, you know, these, these guys are so talented. And I was so happy to see Greg Evigan pop up. Yes, yeah. And, you know, Greg, he's been doing that a lot the past few years. You know, he pops up for a small role, but has it's an important bit of dialogue, an important monologue. Uh, he gets in, he gets yeah. out, but it's always a role that is impactful to the storyline and to the film's protagonist. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that was it was um, lovely to see him pop up. Yeah, Greg is one of my favorite people in the world. Um, and I would never make a movie without putting him in it somewhere. <laughs> so now, now is the Ducati yours? No, the Ducati, uh, honest, the Ducati was loaned to us for shooting for the shooting of the film. Um, and how that came about was, I had sent the script out to a friend of mine, um, who's a, a, you know I'm like a hardcore motorcycle guy, but I, I'm much more of a you know, I don't have 30 years in it. So I sent it to a friend who's very entrenched in the motorcycle culture. 
um, just to see. I was like, hey, how am I doing with this script? Is this something that you think, because I want the motorcycle community to really connect with this film. Is this something that you think that will hit with them? And he wrote me back a couple weeks later, and he was like, look, I, I want to send this to my, my buddy who's the, um, the president of Ducati North America. I think that, you know, I think that they would really maybe connect with something like this. I love it. He gave me a, a series of notes that were blew me away. Um, and then he sent it to Jason Chinock at, at Ducati. And to my absolute surprise, Jason read it. And he got in touch and he was like, hey, what can we do to help you? And I was like, well, it would be great to have usage of a motorcycle. And he was like, done. What do you want? Oh, my God. Um, and they have supported this film throughout. It, much to my amazement, and they've become really good friends of ours now. Wow. Uh, and I'm so, I cannot say enough good things about that company and Jason and all those guys at Ducati. It really, it is a family over there, and those guys are artists. It's incredible. So now, did Jeffrey get to ride the Ducati for most of the film, or did you pull in a stuntman? Jeffrey rode it for a lot of the film. Uh, I couldn't afford him getting hurt. I was going to so say. also had... Well, my buddy Ben Forster, who's also in the movie, he's in, in the bar scene, he, uh, he came out and basically did our stunt riding for us and crewed. Our crew was Sten and, and Ben and myself and Keith and Jeffrey for the most part. And Vanessa was running around helping us get things to set up scenes that were coming up. Uh, and it was really just us. Um, and Stan, you know, he recorded the sound for the movie, and then he went and scored it. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, and Ben did a lot of the stunt writing. Yeah, and then a sound guy that I know, Ryan Cota, worked on the film for you, too, as your dialogue editor. Oh, for our post-production, you know, Ryan, yeah, for yeah. our post-production, yep. Yeah. Yep. It's a very small world, Nathan, very small. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. No, Ryan's great. Those guys at Juniper were so fantastic. And you can hear it in the film. I mean, they're so great. Oh, yeah, yeah. the sound design, uh, that's that that in the cinematography just leapt out at me uh, from right from, yeah. the, from the get go. Now, unfortunately, we are all out of time on the show today. But before I let you go, and of course, okay. everybody can see the film. It's all the digital platforms right now. You can get it, see it. I highly recommend it. But now... Will we? What did you personally take away? This is a film that you don't walk away from without learning something about yourself. What did you take away from this experience that you'll now take forward, be it in life, be it in filmmaking? Mm. Uh, boy, that's not a small question. Um, I, I guess to quickly... I mean, the first thing that pops to mind would be, um, I think I've learned to trust that I'm, I'm more resourceful sometimes than I, I would give myself credit. Um, I've learned as far as the filmmaking process goes that I'm, I'm not a big, I don't really like producing uh, or any of that stuff, but I do really enjoy being on set and directing and actually working with actors. I think, and you know, I think it comes from being an actor. Uh, I guess that's the first thing that comes to mind. Will you step back in the director's chair again? I am actually halfway through a new script at the moment, and I am looking to, I am looking to kind of crank this one out um, and get back, get back into making another one. I, I wasn't ever going to make another one. Uh, I was so by the time we finished this one, 
Um, but I think it's, it's, I just can't kind of not do it at this point. Well, I can't wait to see it, Nathan. Um, thank you so much for calling in and joining us on Behind the Lens today. Um, this is such a joy, and I hope you'll come back on the show again. Um, I would love to. Thank you so much oh, for having me on. I Nathan, appreciate it. Thank you, and everybody, a thousand miles behind. It is definitely yes. a film you will never forget. Nathan, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you okay, soon. thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right, take care. Bye-bye. And that was Nathan Weatherington, writer, director, editor of A Thousand Miles Behind. It really is a beautiful film, and it is, it's an emotional experience um, watching it. So you've got a couple great ones, a clear shot, timely, topical, a must-see film for today. See it, see it. See this one, another great film, fun film that I love that opened this weekend, Candy Witch. It's a horror film without being too, too, too horrifying, but it's a whole lot of fun, and it's out there. And, of course, a beautiful film that just screams sartorial elegance, Sometimes Always Never, starring Bill Nye, Sam Riley, um, just a fabulously done film, directed by Carl Hunter, written by Frank Cattell, Cattrall uh, Boyce, one of my favorite scribes. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for Railway Man, Goodbye Christopher Robin, Hillary and Jackie, uh, Trist uh, Tristram Shandy. Um, that one is also available digitally now. Some great stuff out there to see. That is all the time we have this week. We'll be back next week with who I don't know yet and with what interview I don't know yet. I haven't figured that part out. But until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm -hmm.